Good morning. Uh, well, thank you for the invitation. <clears throat> it's, been, it's been a labour of love preparing for today, and it's been a real privilege. And um, I hope just to share with you something of what I've enjoyed in spending time in the Word and in preparing for today. We have a real privilege, haven't we, uh, in this country to have free access uh, to God's Word. And there are still places... Uh, in the world today where that's not the case and where uh, even to possess a copy of the Word of God, let alone to read it, uh, is an offence and is something that is uh, that results in persecution and results in suffering. So we know our privilege, don't we? And we want then to uh, appreciate that today, to appreciate it more and so to learn from each other in this matter of studying the Word of God. So we start today with the subject of setting the heart, setting the heart to study. And I want to look at it in three, uh, under three headings. What is the Word? Why we should study it? And finally, how do we study it? So first of all, what is the Word? What is the Word? And in this section, I want us just to appreciate what the Word of God is and to, to perhaps just refresh and to challenge our thinking about what the Word of God is because it's fundamental. Our understanding of the Word of God and what it is is fundamental because it will inform our whole theology actually. Everything that we think and that we understand about God, I believe, comes from what we appreciate the Word of God to be. So it's fundamental that we start with that question. What is the Word? And I want us to start with God's view. God's view of his own Word. Psalm 138 verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And the marginal reading there, which I think is the preferred one, you've exalted your word above all your name. God has exalted his word. He's magnified it. Quite simply, God has made his word great. Ah. Still, just a here. Excellent. God has made his word great. We get a similar thought in Isaiah 42, verse 19. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious. <clears throat> Above all things, or the preferred reading, Above all his name, the Lord has made his word great. He's exalted his word. What does that mean, above all his name? Above all his name. The name really is the person, the character. It's how God has demonstrated himself to us. What he's made known of himself to us. 
And so this verse, Psalm 138, is telling us that above all of the ways in which God has made himself known to men, he's exalted his word, he's magnified his word. What are the ways has God made himself known to man? Well, God's made himself known to man in creation. God makes himself known to man in in providence, in the way that he daily provides for men. But in terms of revelation, this verse is telling us that there's nothing like the word of God. The word of God is far greater than the works of God in terms of revealing God. Direct revelation. The word that's translated word within Psalm 138, that verse, it really means promises. The promises of God. What would we know of the promises of God by looking at creation? I'd suggest very little. The promises of God and his word reveal the true character of God, don't they? They reveal to us the love of God in a way that we can't appreciate from looking just at creation. Packer puts it like this. He says, Though all men have an inescapable awareness of God that comes by way of his creation, we we learn that from Romans 1, don't we? He says there can be no natural theology of traditional Thomas type. Only through scripture are these inklings of our maker brought into true focus by being integrated with the revelation of the living God that scripture contains. John Calvin also had a similar analogy. He talked about old men. I need to be careful where I look at the moment. He talked about, he used the analogy of old men. And he said, it's like putting a book in front of an old man. And the old man might discern that there's a book in front of him. And he might discern that there's some words on the page. He said, but if you give him a pair of glasses, you give him some spectacles, and everything comes into focus. And that, I think, is what Psalm 138 and verse 2 is telling us. We can appreciate something about God from creation. We can appreciate something about God from his daily provision, from providence. But it's blurry. But it comes into focus when we pick up the word of God. By direct revelation, we understand God through his promises to us. So God is exalted. And he's magnified his word. Above all of the ways in which he's revealed himself to us, he's made his word great. I want to move on then to think about two things. The inspiration of the word of God and the inerrancy of the word of God. I've taken this little statement from our statement of faith on the fellowship website. I don't know whether you've ever looked at it. Um, It's worth a look. And it's challenging, actually, to go through it and to to test whether you understand each of the statements that are on there. Well, here's one of them. It says this. It says, we believe in the verbal and plenary inspiration of the Old and New Testaments, that they are infallible 
inerrant in the original writings, and the final authority for faith and life. Well, do we understand that statement? Do we know what it's about? Let's break it down. Let's look first at inspiration. Another verse for you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, adequate, equipped for every good work. Inspired, the inspiration of scripture. Inspired literally means breathed out by God. God breathed. What does that mean? Well, I think it tells us that God guided the process. Yes, these things were written down by human authors, but somehow, supernaturally, and I think it was different in different cases, but in each case, God guided the process. So that what has been written down was exactly what God himself wanted to express, breathed out by God. We said two things about the inspiration of the scriptures in our statement of faith. We said we believe in the verbal inspiration and the plenary inspiration of scripture. What are we talking about? Verbal inspiration, first of all. There we're saying that we believe that the words themselves are the words of God. And yet, God has used ordinary human words. There's no special magical, divine language. God has used human words. And what we really mean when we say that we believe that the words themselves are inspired of God, I think is that we mean the wording of the scriptures is inspired by God. Because words only have a determinate meaning when they're used in conjunction with other words. And we understand them in context. So when we say we believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture, we're saying that we believe the words and the wording of Scripture is from God. It's God-breathed. That's why reading and reading well is such an important skill. And we'll come on to see that more as we go on. So verbal inspiration and plenary inspiration. What are we saying there? Plenary inspiration. Well, there, quite simply, we're saying that we believe that All scripture is inspired of God. Full inspiration of the scriptures, Old and New Testament. So that no passage, no matter how we might feel about its usefulness to us, no passage can be disregarded as useless or as any less important or any less authoritative. Now, some might argue and possibly correctly so, that the context here in 2 Timothy 3 is the Old Testament scriptures, that Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures when he talks about all scripture being inspired of God. But in 2 Peter 3 and 16, easy to remember it because it's another 3 and 16, 2 Peter 3 and 16, Peter tells us that Paul in all his letters... Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which they, uh, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So here, P- 
Peter elevates to the same level all of the writings of Paul. They're scripture. God breathed in spite of God. And so we believe in the verbal and the plenary inspiration of old and new testaments. And that leads us on to inerrancy, because belief in inerrancy, I think, flows from belief in inspiration. Matthew 5, verse 18, the Lord speaking, and he says, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. <coughs> Infallible and inerrant. And here I think the Lord tells us that it's accurate to the smallest degree, to the nth degree, to the crossing of the T and the dotting of the I, the jot and the tittle. The scriptures are accurate. And that means that we can confidently examine them with that sort of precision. We can look at the tense of a verb. We can look at whether a noun is singular or plural. We can look at the presence or absence of the definite article, the. And these things have meaning and they're worthy of study because the Lord has told us that the scripture is accurate to that level of detail, to the crossing of the T and the dotting of the I. The study of those things then becomes both fruitful and necessary, I would say. Now we'll notice that our statement of faith referred to inerrancy and infallibility in the original writings. That's what it said, inerrant and infallible in the original writings. And what we'll discern from that is the importance of going back as far as we can and as close as we can to the original writings. And for some of us, that'll be going back to the Hebrew and going back to the Greek. And for some of us, we'll want to get as close as we can to that. And we rely on the work of great men of God who through the years have provided us with the tools to get close to that. But we want to get as close to it as we can. You know, I remember as a boy probably aged 12 or 13, my Sunday school teacher at the time, uh, who was Ruth Butling, uh, presented me with a, a little Greek New Testament. And I, I didn't know any Greek at the time, but it inspired me. It inspired me to go on and learn Greek. And that's what I did. I studied classical Greek through to A-level. And I, I don't regret that. I regret perhaps the lack of use of it over the years. But it challenged me. And I want to challenge you guys today. Get as close as you can to the original writings. It might not be the Hebrew and the Greek, but get as close as you can to it. And use the tools that we've been provided with to get close to it. Psalm 119, 1-8 Therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. This, I think, is what comes from inerrancy. This is the attitude that is produced by a belief in the inerrancy and infallibility of God's word. And I say to us today, do we have the same attitude as the psalmist, viewing all God's word as correct in relation to all things? Nothing left out. 
Our statement of faith finished by saying that we believe that it's the final authority for life and for faith. And that's the logical function of inerrancy. If we believe in inerrancy, that's where we get to. And that's why inerrancy matters. Inerrancy, belief in inerrancy, sets us some barriers. It sets us some rules for our handling and our study of the word of God. It means that we can't deny or disregard or relativize arbitrarily any of the teaching of scripture. It means that we can't discount the practical implications for our lives of any of the teaching of scripture. And it means also that we can't cut the knot. When we come across passages that we think contradict other passages, we can't cut the knot and and say, well, there's a contradiction there. That doesn't work. Belief in inerrancy commits us in advance to to harmonise, to integrate all of the teaching of Scripture. It should make us, as the psalmist, altogether believing and altogether obedient. I just put this up. This is again from from Packer. And this is, I think, where you get to. This is the traditional evangelical view of God's word. And I commend it to you. This is the view of God's word that I think comes from a belief in its inspiration and its inerrancy. Let's just go through this quickly. He says, scripture is both clear and sufficient. He says, the God-given scriptures are the self-interpreting, self-contained rule of Christian faith and life in every age. He says, though the canonical books were composed over a period of more than a thousand years, during which there have been significant cultural shifts, and they become apparent in the records themselves, they present within a framework of progressive declaration and fulfilment of God's saving purpose in Christ, a consistent view, a consistent view of how God deals with men. And since God doesn't change, and nor deep down does man, this view remains timely and final. The job of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is to lead us into the scriptures that he inspired to open them to us. And then for us, both collectively and individually as Christians, we have to live by the scriptures. That is by the appropriate contemporary application of biblical principles. And then this is the reflection of the verse we read from the Psalms, isn't it? All our beliefs, disbeliefs, hopes, fears, prayers, praises and actions must be controlled and must be checked and where necessary reformed in the light of what God is heard saying as the Spirit brings principles, scriptural principles to bear on our lives. So, that I hope has just set the tone for the day in terms of our appreciation afresh We know these things, don't we? But it's good to appreciate them afresh of what God's word is. That leads us on to our next question then. Why? Why should we study God's word? Well, frankly, there are hundreds of reasons that I could have given uh, in this section. But I want to look at really a compelling reason which comes from God's condescension. 
And so this reason really is a reason or an argument that is based on grace. It's an argument from grace. And the first part of it is this, that God has humbled himself in the inspiration of the scriptures. When Paul speaks of the cross of Christ as being the foolishness and the weakness of God, he's being ironic, of course, but he's also making a very positive theological point. He's showing us how far God was prepared to humble himself, to hide his glory and to become vulnerable to shame and to dishonour in the matter of our salvation in order to, to win us. God humbled himself for our salvation in incarnation and ultimately at the cross, didn't he? But you know, he also humbled himself for the knowledge of our salvation in the human and often unimpressive language of the scriptures. Because just as the cross is foolishness and weakness in human eyes, the word of God too is foolish and weak. Piper puts it like this, he says, an evangelical believes that God humbled himself not only in the incarnation of his son, but also in the inspiration of the scriptures. The manger and the cross weren't sensational, neither are grammar and syntax, but that is how God chose to reveal himself. A poor Jewish, Jewish peasant and a prepositional phrase have this in common. They're both human and they're both ordinary. C.S. <coughs> Lewis says a similar thing. He says, the same divine humility which decreed that God should become a baby at a peasant woman's breast and later an arrested field preacher in the hands of the Roman, priest, uh, the Roman police decreed also that he should be preached in vulgar, prosaic, and unliterary language. Calvin again talks about the language of the scripture as being unliterary, foolish language by the standards of the world. God, out of love, has chosen to communicate with us in simple modes of language, the language of, of unschooled men. And I say that's, uh, that's a sign of his grace. That's a token, isn't it, of his condescension. Calvin says it's like how we operate when we talk to our own children. We adopt their language, don't we? We adopt their level in order to communicate with them. And Calvin says that's exactly what God has done with us. In the provision of his word, he's given us something that's at our level. He's talked to us like children. And that's the grace of God, isn't it? That's God condescending to reveal to us the knowledge of salvation. If God was willing to become undignified in both inspiration and incarnation in order to save us, then what's our response? Inspiration and inerrancy then become part of the doctrine of grace. I say, won't our response be that we rejoice at receiving a second unspeakable gift 
from the divine giver, a Bible that we can absolutely trust and which imparts the knowledge of salvation and of the will of our God. Well, that's the first part of the argument. And if we need anything more to motivate us in the study of the scriptures, well, we can go further because not only did God condescend to reveal himself to us in the ordinary human language of the scripture, but it appeals to me that his son humbled himself as a man to study and to learn those scriptures. Grace again, isn't it? Condescension. And in doing so, he modelled for us, the Lord Jesus Christ modelled for us the very behaviour that we're talking about today. The study of God's word. John 7 and verse 15, the Jews were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? You know, when the Jews asked, how has this man become learned? Literally, that phrase means, how does he know his letters? How does he know his letters? The word there is grammar. I think it refers to the scriptures. That's how it's used elsewhere in the, in the New Testament. They were referring to the Lord Jesus' knowledge of the scriptures, and not just his knowledge of the words, but his knowledge and his understanding of how they fitted together. The literary methods of the time. How the words hung together. What they were saying essentially was that the Lord Jesus Christ was an exceptional reader. He was a great reader. He knew how to read properly. And he knew how to give the true meaning. The true interpretation of the scriptures. And the Jews marveled at this. Because he hadn't been to rabbinical school. He hadn't spent three years at Bible college. Three years at seminary. Learning these things. And yet he was better able to elucidate than anyone they'd ever known before. His ministry, his teaching, was what we would call expository. He understood the true meaning. And he was able to convey the sense of the scriptures to his hearers. This afternoon we're going to be in our workshop in Philippians chapter 2. And so we're going to encounter the, uh, the kenosis, the Greek word, the kenosis, which is the, uh, the self-emptying of Christ. He emptied himself. Being in the form of God, he emptied himself. In his manhood, Christ didn't grasp at equality with God, but he emptied himself. And partly at least, I take that to mean that Christ in his manhood, didn't rely upon his divine power and upon his divine knowledge. Rather, I think that he was crowned with glory and honour in his manhood because his um, demonstrations, if you like, of divine power and of divine knowledge were consequent upon him waiting upon the Father and upon the Spirit what I'm really trying to say is that I think the Lord Jesus Christ learned the scriptures in the same way that we're expected to learn them. So his learning in the scriptures wasn't a result of his divine omniscience. It wasn't a, relying, a reliance on his, God, his being God. 
Luke 2 and verse 52 tells us that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. This wasn't something that he carried with him from the manger, I don't think. His learning in the scriptures was something he acquired. He grew in it, in the same sense as we grow. I quite like the New American Standard translation here, that he kept increasing. He kept advancing, kept growing in learning, in wisdom and in stature. Well, how did he do that? Well, John 8 and verse 28 tells us, I think, Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. As the Father taught me. That word there implies formal instruction. Didactic teaching, the same as the sort of teaching that I'm giving now. Formal instruction. It implies structured teaching in the things of God. As the Spirit of God led the Lord Jesus Christ into the truth of God's written word. Isn't it the same thought we have in Isaiah chapter 50? He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I think we've got the Messiah in view, haven't we, in these scriptures? The Lord Jesus Christ in view as the one who would willingly learn, who would listen as a disciple. He came before the great teacher, didn't he? Morning by morning. And his ear was open. I say, what condescension that is. What grace. Doesn't that inspire us? Doesn't that motivate us to study the scriptures like he did? And you know, since the Lord Jesus Christ never went to school, rabbinical school, it doesn't leave open to any one of us the argument that this isn't for me. Because I'm not an academic. These things aren't for me. That argument's not open to us. I will say this. Study of the word of God is a deeply intellectual activity. In the proper uh, use of that word. Because it's an activity that engages the mind. It has to be. Any sort of reading is an activity of the mind. Because we have, to, we have to reason, we have to use logic to understand what it is that the author wants to convey to us. So any sort of reading is an intellectual activity. And the study of the scripture is no different. It's an intellectual activity, but it's not an academic one. This isn't about head knowledge. This isn't about learning for the sake of uh, reputation or status. This is about learning for the sake of application. It's thoroughly practical. So it's intellectual, yes, but thoroughly practical. Well, that brings us on to our third section, our real focus for today. How do we study? I think it's worth just drawing a distinction between um, 
our daily reading of the scriptures, our quiet time, our devotional reading, and the study of God's word. I think they're two different exercises. Albeit, perhaps the distinction is really just one of intensity. The intensity of the reading is different. And we need both. We absolutely must have both. For a balanced diet, we need delight and we need depth. And I think our devotional reading is about that delight, isn't it? Daily delight in the scriptures. And our study is about depth. We want to get to the meat of God's word. We don't want to always have milk. We want to get to the meat. The skills that we learn in the study of God's word will apply in our quiet time, in shorthand. They'll inform how we read God's word and how we delight in it in our quiet time. But in study, we want to go further. Setting the heart, and that's exactly what Ezra did. For Ezra had set his heart to, the, to, to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach. To study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach. We said it's an intellectual activity, but not an academic one. And Ezra models that for us perfectly, doesn't he? Study, application and practice, and then preaching. Those three, and in that order, study, application or practice, and then teaching, preaching. And in setting the heart, in setting the heart to study, Ezra shows us that this isn't just about the head. This is to embrace the whole being, isn't it? It's to embrace the devotion as much as the intellect. Now those first two stages, study and practice, uh, I suppose in evangelical circles, are the processes that are sometimes referred to as uh, exegesis and in its narrowest form, hermeneutics. Exegesis or study and hermeneutics, the application and the practice of it. Exegesis, first of all, what are we on about? Well, what that word really means is to to lead out, to lead out. And in exegesis, in study of the word of God, what we're interested in is leading out, finding out the original meaning that the author intended. We noted the condescension of God to communicate with us in human words, in human language. But that doesn't go far enough. Because actually, God has communicated with us in the particular language of particular human beings who lived in particular places at particular times. And the language, language is very simplest actually, involves us in questions of grammar and in questions of context. And the language of the scripture, even more so, because it's a language which isn't our own. It's a language of people and of a time and of a place, not our own. So those questions become even more important. So exegesis then is about leading out, about grasping what the original authors intended to communicate to their original hearers in their historical situation. And by doing so, bearing in mind our belief in inspiration and inerrancy, in doing so to understand what God intended to communicate for that particular situation. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to put ourselves in their shoes. 
We want to see reality as they saw it. And that involves us in reading carefully and in reading critically. And by that I mean asking questions, asking good questions. We have to become like a detective almost in our reading of the scripture. That involves asking good questions. And those questions will be of two types. And we'll come on to look at this in a little bit more detail in a moment. There'll be questions of context and there'll be questions of content. Context and content. So that's exegesis, leading out, putting ourselves into the shoes of the author. And then hermeneutics, the application of it. And there what we're then doing is seeking the contemporary significance of what we've learned for faith and for life. Now we're concerned about finding the meaning in the here and now and applying it to ourselves, the contemporary relevance of it. But you see the importance of the process and of getting it in the right order. We've got to do our exegesis first before we go to hermeneutics. We can't go straight into application until we've understood what the original meaning was, what the original intention uh, was of the writing. So we don't take, take the text to mean whatever we want it to mean. We don't relativize it arbitrarily, as I said earlier. And it can't mean anything to us, or it certainly can't mean to us something entirely contradictory to its original intended meaning. There is sometimes a fuller interpretation, isn't there, that we can take from scriptures that were written long ago. Okay, some practical things now then. And the first one is this, choosing your study Bible. Remember that we said that the scriptures are infallible and inerrant in the original writings. And what that means is that the, the choice of our Bible for study becomes very important. Because as we said earlier, we want to get as close to we can, as we can to those original writings. Unless we can read Hebrew or Chaldee or Greek, we're going to need to choose a good study Bible. There are two broad categories, two broad groups of translations of the scriptures. And they are what's known as formal equivalency and dynamic equivalency. And in formal equivalency, I should say first of all, that all translations of the scriptures into our own language involve a degree of interpretation on the part of the translator. But with formal equivalency, what you have is more a word-for-word translation or interpretation. So those translations tend to retain as, as closely as they can the structure of the original writings, the sentence structure. And they try to translate word for word what was in the original writings. That's formal equivalency. And then the second group, dynamic equivalency, those translations are more a thought for thought interpretation. So they'll take a sentence or a paragraph and will try to give the meaning of it in probably a more readable, presentable manner, more contemporary manner. It's a thought for thought interpretation rather than a word-for-word interpretation. So it becomes quite useful to know 
which versions belong to which group. And this, I think, is quite a useful visual because it gives us an idea of the spectrum. The dynamic equivalency group includes versions such as the, uh, the Message, the Living Bible, the Good News Bible. On the other hand, the other end of the scale, the formal equivalency, the word-for-word -word camp, includes versions such as the King James, the Revised, the New King James, New American Standard, and the English Standard Version. And smack bang in the middle, really, of the two camps, you've got the good old NIV, New International Version. The NIV makes a great version for reading. It really does, sat where it is, right in the middle of those two camps. But it's not necessarily the best version, I would say, from which to study the Scriptures. You want, if possible, to be going for something down this end of the scale. And I would say, by the way, we've got Amplified down here. I don't necessarily agree with that. But certainly the, ones, the other ones that we've got down the end of the scale there, New American Standard, ESB, uh, RSB, are the versions you really want to be going for in terms of choosing your study Bible. The later versions are particularly good because you benefit from the most recent scholarship in the field of textual criticism. That's why the NASB, New American Standard, and the ESV, which is the latest of the lot actually, I think New American Standard was last updated in 97, and the English Standard was 2001. And that's why they're right down the end there. Textual criticism, just a brief note, and we don't need to get too hung up about this, but that's really the science of comparing the uh, original manuscripts to work out what the original text should have been. And it is worth knowing, I think, that there are um, several different groups, uh, several different schools, if you like, of manuscripts. We have the uh, Alexandrian camp, uh, the Byzantine camp, which comes later, and the Western camp. And it's useful, I think, to know that. And that accounts for some of the textual variations that you might find when you compare versions of the scripture. It's worth knowing that uh, the King James Version and the New King James Version are based on the Byzantine manuscripts, and they were the, they were the later group, much later in fact. Whereas the Revised Version, traditional version of the Fellowship, is based on the much earlier Alexandrian manuscripts. But the versions that I've recommended, the New American Standard <coughs> Version, and the English Standard Version really take the best of both worlds. And they combine the two. And that, I think, is what makes them um, such favourable versions from which to study. But, as I say, it's only a minor point, really, textual criticism. Because I think it's right to say that they're 98% the same, the manuscripts. So the variations we're talking about are very, very small, um, de minimis, really, sections of the New Testament. So we don't need to get too hung up about it, but it is worth knowing. So choice of our version is very important. And just a brief example of that. This is an example based on First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. And I've got the, uh, the New, New American Standard at the top and the NIV at the bottom. 
Note the words in red in the NIV. Produced, prompted and inspired. This is just a, it's just a minor example this, but you won't find those words in the original Greek. They're not there. The original Greek reads as the New American Standard has it. Work of faith, labour of love and steadfastness or perseverance of hope. Now the NIV has supplied those words and it's not necessarily wrong to do so. I, I wouldn't disagree with the translation that the NIV translators have proposed. It gives the meaning. It gives the sense. But if you were going to conduct a word study, and if you were going to look up these words with a view to conducting a word study on them, you wouldn't find them, because they're not there in the Greek. And that's the point to note. And then the second point to note is the green text that I've highlighted in both versions. That little prepositional phrase, before or in the presence of our garden father. The New American Standard Version has placed that exactly where it appears in the structure of the sentence in the original Greek. But the New, uh, the new International Version, the translators of the New International Version, have placed it where they think it belongs in the sentence. So you can see their interpretation. And actually, I think there are three plausible uh, options for where to place that little phrase before our garden father in the context of this sentence. We could link it with the remembering or constantly bearing in mind. It could be that Paul's prayers were in the presence of our garden father. That he was before the face of God in prayer. The second option is that we could link it with the Thessalonians' work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope. It could be that that's in the presence of our God and Father, in the sight of God, requiring all the more sincerity in it because of the fact that it's in the sight of God. Or lastly, the third option is that it could link with the subject of our hope, even the Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. And that third option appeals to me because if we understand the subject of our hope to be the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God the Father, we understand that the subject of our hope is the forerunner, the one who's gone before us and who's now in the presence of God. And that's what gives us hope, isn't it? The hope of the one who's gone before. I'm not necessarily saying that one or the other is right. All I'm showing to you is that there are three plausible interpretations of that little phrase and what it belongs to in the context of that sentence. And the, NI, uh, the NASB has placed the phrase where it appears in the Greek. And in doing so, they've left the interpretation of it up to you. But the NIV uh, translators have moved it. And so they've done the interpretation. They've placed it there because they believe that it belongs with the remembering. So they've done that work for you. So that really is just, to, just a small example to illustrate the point that the choice of version uh, is important when we want to conduct a, a serious study of the word of God. And we want to go for one of those formal equivalency, word-for-word -word type translations, which give us the structure, as far as possible, the structure of the original writings.
That brings us then on to our questioning. <coughs> this is where we put our detective hat on and we start to interrogate the scriptures. And we said there are two types of questions that we're going to have to ask. And the first uh, group of questions are questions of context. Historical and literary context. I like this little diagram that you'll see in uh, the little booklet that Brian's prepared for you later to take away. And this, I think, just um, helps us to understand the process that we go through in asking our questions of context and in trying to understand the context of the passage that we've chosen to study. It's an ever-widening scope of, exp- uh, of exploration and of questioning. So we start off with the immediate context, the, the passage, the, the paragraph perhaps that we've chosen to study, and we work out from there. We've got to read that, uh, that passage, that paragraph, several times, I would suggest, before we do anything else. And maybe in different versions. Maybe in a couple of those formal equivalency versions that we've been thinking about. It'll start to give us a different flavour and possible different interpretations. And then we'll want to read more widely. So if we're studying a part of one of the letters, we'll probably want to read the whole letter. If we're studying another book, well, maybe we'll want to read several chapters either side of the passage that we're looking at. Enough to give us the context. And I would suggest that a good idea is to try and summarise them. Summarise the few chapters that we've read. Or the book, if we've read the whole book. And we can do that by um, mapping out a provisional idea of the chapters in the book. Or the paragraphs in the chapters that we've read. With a view to, to going back and, uh, and revisiting it later. In terms of literary context, we do need to be sensitive to the genre of the writing that we're reading. We need to be aware of the fact that all scripture is not written in the same style. We've got a wonderful library of, oh, I didn't realise that was there, it's obscured from view slightly, but we've got a wonderful library of, of books in the scriptures. We've got books of historical narrative. We've got books of law. We've got books of history, of poetry, of wisdom, prophecy, apocalyptic, gospels, epistles, and more besides. And we need to have regard to the style, the genre. Because that's going to inform us in terms of our interpretation of the text. Is what we're reading to be interpreted literally? Or is it figurative? So it's important to, get to, to take note of the style and to let that inform our interpretation. And then we'll want to ask questions. Historical questions. Who wrote it? Who did he write it to? When did he write it? Where did he write it? What were the circumstances that prompted the writing? Or do we know the reason it was written? What was the purpose of it? And literary questions. Questions of literary context. Why is the author saying this now, in this particular passage? In terms of finding the answer to historical questions, don't ignore the historical narrative of the Bible itself. Don't ignore the history books of the Bible. So, for example, in the New Testament letters, 
we're reading a New Testament letter, we're studying one of the letters of Paul, don't ignore the historical, historical narrative of the New Testament, the Acts. The Acts of the Apostles contains rich history to supplement, to give the context of the writing of the letters. So our example of 1 Thessalonians. We'd want to look to Acts 17, which gives us the clear context of that Thessalonian church, a new church, an infant church, and a church which Paul had had to, be, uh, had had to abandon, having been forced to flee to Corinth from where he was writing. That gives us the context, it gives us the setting. It explains why Paul goes to such great lengths in chapter 2 of that book to defend himself and his reputation from those who would have said, look, this chap's been here five minutes and he's gone. That gives us the context. A reference Bible is an important tool. A reference Bible can help us in this regard. Following the references in the margin of our Bible will often direct us to uh, other passages within the same book or passages within other books that can shed light on these historical questions and questions of literary context too. References perhaps to uh, the history books or references to um, passages which will tell us that a scripture is being quoted from the Old Testament. So. so don't ignore the references in your Bible. Some other tools are useful in this regard too, in terms of giving the context, historical and literary. These sort of tools are quite useful. A Bible handbook, a Bible atlas, perhaps an encyclopedia of Bible life. And then lastly, Commentaries, but be careful of commentaries at this stage. Be careful of commentaries. If you're going to dip into a commentary for context, that's, that's fine. But be careful not to go into the detail of the content at this stage and to spoil your own, your own appreciation of it. We want to find our own uh, thoughts first. And lastly then, Having explored the context, having asked questions of context, we're going to move on to ask questions of content. There are three steps to this process, I think, and it's a bit of a circular process, as will prove evident. The three steps, I think, are these. Defining the words, that's determining the, the meaning of the words. Understanding the clauses. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. That's really breaking the text down into, uh, into the, what are really the building blocks of language. Um, understandable chunks. Clauses. And then relating the clauses to each other. Three steps to the process. And I say it's a, it's a bit of a circular process. It's a, not a vicious, a, a virtuous circle, I suppose we, we would call it. First of all then, defining the words, determining the terms. We need to settle the meaning of each word within its given context. And there are some tools that are going to be helpful to us in doing that. These are, think, are the tools we need, if we can lay our hands on them. First of all, an interlinear Bible. That's a Bible that sets the uh, original language, be it the Hebrew or the Greek, 
on one line, and underneath it, uh, the English interpretation, and preferably one that's keyed to the Strong's numbering system. So above each word, above each original word, Hebrew or Greek, there'll be a number, the Strong's number. And that's important because that assists us in the next part of the process, which involves looking the word up in a dictionary, using the number to look that word up in a lexicon or a dictionary. The most well-known probably is Strong's, the man who devised the numbering system. And his own concordance, the exhaustive concordance, has such a dictionary at the back of it. If we want to study the word a little bit more seriously and a little bit more depth than that, we'll perhaps choose Vines, or maybe Thayer's Greek Dictionary, or Brown Driver Briggs' Hebrew Lexicon. Another tool that's quite important, quite useful, we'll come on to explain this in a minute, is the the Englishman's Concordance. And then lastly, just to say that probably for most of us these days, we've all of those tools, and more besides, in our computer Bible study programme. And we're probably doing these things and exploring uh, these great resources at the touch of a button. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that a dictionary or a lexicon is going to provide you with a range of meaning. For many Hebrew and Greek words, there's a range of meaning. And that isn't license for us to pick any of the meanings that are given for a stated word. What we're trying to do is trying to pin down, trying to settle the meaning of that word in its particular context. By the same token then, we can't simply assume that because the same word in the original Greek or Hebrew is used in two different verses, that it has the same meaning in each verse. I'll give you an example of that. Using again First Thessalonians, and this example taken from chapter 5. You, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Paul's warning the Thessalonians, or, or rather he's comforting the Thessalonians with regards to the day of the Lord. And he's telling them they don't need to be afraid that the day of the Lord's already passed. He's saying, you brethren are not in darkness that this day should overtake you. The sense of that word there, overtake, really means to, um, to surprise you, to come upon you ex- unexpectedly. It's not going to overtake you. That same word, that same Greek word, is used in Philippians 3, verse 13, which is the passage I'm going to talk from tonight in our closing uh, session. I've used the same uh, translation of it there. But does it give the sense, brethren, Paul now talking about the prize and about winning the prize. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having overtaken it. That doesn't work, does it? Is Paul coming upon the prize by surprise, unexpectedly, overtaking it? No. The sense there is slightly different. Paul's saying he doesn't regard himself yet as having laid hold of it, having taken possession of it. We can, see, we can see where it comes from, can't we? We can see where the two meanings come from, but they're slightly different, they're slightly nuanced. And so the point I'm making is that the same word, 
but doesn't have quite the same meaning in each context. So the point is that we need to pin down, to settle the meaning of the word within its given context. The Englishman's Concordance, I said I'd refer to that again, that can be useful. That can be useful to us. The Englishman's Concordance, once we've got our Strong's number for a particular word that we want to study, will enable us to see all of the uses of that word in either the New Testament or the Old Testament, depending on whether we're looking at a Hebrew or Greek word. And that can be helpful to us because it can allow us to try to find the same word used in a context that we understand and then to apply that meaning to the passage, to the verse that we're trying to understand. So the process that I've described in in terms of determining the meaning of the word is a little bit like this. And again, I've taken this example from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This time, verse 5. So I've started off and I've looked at the little phrase, the little verse, or part of a verse, in my interlinear Bible. And that's what I've got at the top. So as I described, I've got my Greek words at the top. I've got my English translation underneath. And then underneath that, I've got my Strong's number. And here I'm interested in that word darkness. Paul's saying, we're not of night, brethren, nor of darkness. So I want to look at that word darkness. I want to find a little bit more about it. So the next thing I've done is I've picked up my Greek lexicon. This time I'm using Thayer's Greek lexicon. And I've looked at the number, 4655. And it's given me a definition, darkness. Quite a simple one, this. Not a range of meaning. It is quite simple, darkness. But he does go on to tell me that it can be used properly or figuratively, metaphorically. And that gives me a clue. And I sort of knew that anyway from reading the verse. I sort of knew that Paul was using the word here figuratively, metaphorically. You're not of the night, nor of the darkness. So now I want to find out whether there are any other instances in which Paul uses that word in a similar sense. So now I pick up my Englishman's concordance and I look at the same number, 4655. And it gives me quite a number of references, actually. But I've picked out just one. And I've looked up the verse, Acts 26 and verse 18, where the same word is used. And there Paul says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Now I'm starting to get an understanding of what it means to be of darkness or not of darkness as the case is. That I don't belong to darkness. That I'm not under the dominion of darkness, which is the dominion of the evil one. In fact, I've been translated from that, taken from that, from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. Okay, well, ultimately, it's only possible to define a word, to settle upon the meaning of a word within its context. And that's why it's important to... Um, understand, the, understand the clauses or the propositions. That was part two of this three-part process. Understanding the clauses. Because words only have a determinate meaning when they're used in conjunction with other words. So clauses, what are clauses? Well, I'm not about to give you um, a, lesson, a lesson in English grammar. Um, 
I'm not skilled to do that in any event. But just very basically, very simply, um, clauses or a clause is a group of words which is capable of standing on its own and conveying meaning. A simple way, I think, of dividing our chosen passage up into clauses will be for us to look for the verbs. For us to look for the verbs and to look for the subjects, the the actors, the people doing the things. So subjects and verbs are a good way of, uh, a simple way of dividing a text up into clauses. The shortest clause in the scriptures, Jesus wept. Subject, verb, Jesus wept. So, very simply, a clause is, is the smallest building block of language. A sentence might contain more than one clause. We've said that this is a circular process. So we'll be doing this. We'll be breaking our passage up into clauses really at the same time as we're trying to determine the meaning of the words. And it's a little bit merry-go-roundish. So we'll be going backwards and forwards. We'll be refining our definition of the meaning of the words as we, as we break up the passage into clauses. And then lastly, just as we've said that words only mean something definite when they're used in conjunction with other words, so too clauses only have a definite meaning when we see how they relate to other clauses. So the last part of the process is we've now got to relate the clauses to one another. That is, we've got to see the relationship between clauses. An example of what I mean, and I don't want to say too much about this because uh, it's contained within the, the passage that we're going to study in our workshop later. Philippians 2, verse 12. Here's a clause. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a clause. It's capable of being understood on its own and giving clear meaning. We can understand all of those words and we can understand them in their context of that clause. But unless you relate that clause to the other clauses around it, you could end up with a, a very peculiar understanding and certainly not the understanding, the intention that was to be conveyed by the original author. I don't want to say any more about that because that forms part of our exercise later. We'll want to look at that clause and we'll want to relate it properly to the clauses that surround it. So what we're trying to do when we're relating clauses, really, is we're trying to follow the logical flow or the argument. It's it's worth recognising that a lot of the scripture is written in arguments, particularly in the New Testament, particularly in the letters. Paul argues. So there's logic There's flow, there's rhythm to his writing. And that's what we're trying to discover in relating the clauses. We're trying to follow the flow. We're really, we're trying to discover the author's main point and then to see how the other clauses support it and relate to it. Now, there are a couple of things that I think are going to be very useful to us in this exercise. And... um, I'm not sure whether I've got enough to go around, but I'll, I'll dish, the, dish these down. In fact, you can be passing them around whilst I'm talking. There may not be one each of There's three sheets there. But hopefully you can get sight of, of one anyway. The first thing that I think is really helpful to us in terms of this part of the process relating the clauses is we need to have an understanding 
of all of the possible logical relationships between different clauses. And there are 18. And the sheet that's going round is really a cheat sheet. And I commend it to you. Um, It tells you the 18 possible different logical relationships between clauses. I won't say any more about that for now. The second thing that I think is helpful to us is a way then of visually representing the relationship that we decide between clauses that allows us to map out the relationship between a whole paragraph, maybe say six, seven, eight, nine verses, without losing the track, without losing track of what we've done. There are many different ways. You might have your own. One that I would commend to you um, is the method that's known as arcing. And um, if you've not come across this before, uh, go home and look up the website biblearc.com. Biblearc.com. There are tutorials on there that will take you through, step by step, how to do it. It's an investment of time, a huge investment of time, actually. But I would say it's a commendable one. And I certainly would commend it to you. Now, I'm conscious that I'm out of time, but I want just to give you this example of what I've been talking about before I finish. An example of relating the clauses. And I'm back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 again. Verses 4 to 5, the first part of verse 5 at least. And what I've done here is I've broken those verses down into clauses first of all. So you can see how that verse 4 has been split, I think, into two two clauses. Ignore the conjunctions for a moment. Each of those statements is capable of being understood on its own. So first of all, you, brethren, are not in darkness. That's clear meaning on its own. So it's a clause. Second statement. The day might, should, overtake you like a thief. That's a clause. Again, it's capable of being understood on its own. And then the last one. You are all sons of light and sons of day. So I split that little passage up into three clauses. I've got my clauses, and I now need to relate them to one another. I now need to see how they relate to one another. Well, this is what I've ended up with. This is an example of um, what I was just referring to, arcing. So first of all, I've related the top two clauses to each other. And I've said that the top clause is an action that has a result. And I've said that the last clause is the ground or is the reason for all of the above. So what I've ended up with is something like this. I've ended up saying that the main point is the middle bit, the result. The main point that Paul is trying to convey is that, brethren, the day of the Lord is not going to come upon you unexpectedly. It's not going to overtake you. It's not going to surprise you. And that's a result of the first part of the clause, uh, the first part of verse four, the first clause, it's a result of them not being in darkness. So the main point is you're not going to be overtaken by this day, because, as a result of you not being in darkness. And then verse five, the final clause supports 
the idea that is given in verse 4. The reason they're not in darkness, the reason this day is not going to overtake them, the ground of it, is that they're not of darkness. Rather, no, they're of the light. They're sons of light and sons of day. So I hope, I know we're going over this quickly, but I hope just by way of brief example, that gives you an idea of what I'm talking about when I say we need to relate the clauses and to determine the relationship between clauses. Again, just thinking ahead to our workshop this afternoon, um, it'll be particularly important that we uh, think about how to relate the clauses in Philippians 2, verse 7. But emptied himself, that's a clause. Taking the form of a bondservant, that's a clause. How are you going to relate those two clauses? But he emptied himself, is it so that he might take the form of a bondservant? Is it he emptied himself, therefore he took the form of a bondservant? Or is it that he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant? Have a think about that as you work through the study this afternoon. How are you going to relate those two clauses in Philippians 2 verse 7? And then just to say again that once we've related the clauses and we think we're happy that we've got the relationship correct, then we go back round again and we check the meaning of the words and we go round in the circle until we're happy, we're satisfied that we've led out the meaning that the author originally intended to convey. In its context, historical and literary, we're happy, we've settled it. Now, it'll be apparent that this is a lengthy exercise. This takes time. Study is hard work. It takes time. And I find, just speaking personally, that I need a session of at least two hours to be able to get into study. It takes me an hour, really, I think, just to get going. And then in the second hour, I find that things start to click and the Spirit starts to, uh, to open the Word to me. And what that means is that we've got a plan for this. If we don't plan for this, it won't happen. So there's discipline to this. There's investment of time. But boy, will it be worth it as we're led into the depth of the riches of God's Word. Just close with this. I think this is the attitude of the student. Remember the wrestler, Jacob? I won't let you go unless you bless me. That's what we're like when we come to God's word to study it, aren't we? And we wrestle. and We won't let go until the Spirit blesses and leads us into the truth and into the meaning of it.